0: I want to begin this morning by uh, telling you a story about uh, a man named David Brainerd. I don't know if that's somebody you've heard of before or not. I actually had not uh, before I came across his story. Uh, David Brainerd was born in Connecticut in 1718. So we're going back 300 years here. Um, he had uh, he had kind of a kind of a rocky childhood I guess Uh, I guess you could say um, uh, his father died when he was nine years old Uh, his mother died when he was 14 years old Um, he actually uh, he inherited a farm when he was 19 um, but it didn't take long for him to realize that that running a farm was uh, just not for him so he prepared to enroll at Yale University Um, And then prior to beginning classes there, he had a profound conversion experience to Christ. Then he started at Yale, and during his time there, there was was a bit of a a spiritual awakening on campus. Um, They've kind of traced it back due to the the teachings of George Whitefield and Jonathan Edwards, um, among others, and really, to make a long story short about his uh, college years at Yale, David ended up being expelled from Yale because of his excessive spiritual enthusiasm. So students, if you've got to be expelled, I'd say that's something good to shoot for, excessive spiritual enthusiasm. Um, well, after his, uh, after his expulsion, David followed God's calling on his life, and he went to evangelize the Native Americans of the Northeast, um, and it proved to be a very difficult calling. It greatly affected David, and I want to read to you an entry in his journal. Uh, this is dated May 18th, 1743. He writes, My circumstances are such that I have no comfort of any kind but what I have in God. I live in the most lonesome wilderness, have but one single person to converse with that can speak English. Most of the talk I hear is either Highland Scotch or Indian. I have no fellow Christian to whom I might unburden myself, lay open my spiritual sorrows. With whom I might take sweet counsel in conversation about heavenly things and join in social prayer. I live poorly with regard to the comforts of life. Most of my diet consists of boiled corn, hasty pudding, etc. I lodge on a, ben- on a bundle of straw. My labor is hard and extremely difficult, and I have little appearance of success to comfort me. Sounds pleasant doesn't it? I mean, he's, he's bearing his soul there as he writes in his journal. Well, two days later, two days after he wrote that, he wrote this, was much perplexed some part of the day, but towards night had some comfortable meditations on Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1. And enjoyed some sweetness in prayer. Afterward, my soul rose so far above the deep waters that I dared to rejoice in God. I saw there was sufficient matter of consolation in the blessed God. Maybe it makes you wonder, like it made me wonder, what did Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, have to say that caused a man in such a sufferable situation? to have his soul rise high, to, to, to rejoice in God? Um, we'll answer that question. We'll get there. But before we get there, we need to kind of do a little reset this morning when it comes to the context in Isaiah. Normally, at the beginning of the book, I'll, I'll spend time unpacking the historical setting and the author and, and various things like that. And, and we did do that at the beginning of Isaiah but we need to do it again, because if if you remember back to that first week, I, I said that there was, there was this distinct break in between Isaiah chapters 39 and 40. It's so distinct that that plenty of scholars wonder whether or not Isaiah himself wrote the final 27 chapters of the book that bears his name, because not only does the literary style change, the tone of the book changes. But the people to whom the message is given also changes. So the first 39 chapters were written to God's people living in southern Judah around 740 to 690 BC. That's the time frame for the first 39 chapters. They were facing, as we've said multiple weeks, they were facing this threat of judgment from God due to their sinful rejection of him. Uh, They were facing the threat of military attack from Assyria, The world's superpower at that time. But the message today in chapters 40 and and through the end of the book, that was written to God's people living in exile in Babylon, probably somewhere between 580 and 520 BC. So 100 to 125 years forward from the end of chapter 39. So you can see why there kind of needs to be a reset of the context, because there's been at least a century, if not more than that, that has passed. So so let's get caught up a a little bit. Uh, We left chapter 39 with King Hezekiah ruling in southern Judah. Remember last week he was facing these dual threats of invasion from Assyria and his own health. He cried out to God. God provided deliverance from both of those things. Um, at, the, at the very end of chapter 39, however, there's a prophecy given about a period of exile that would eventually come. Even though the Assyrians weren't going to be successful in defeating Jerusalem, a period of exile would come, this time at the hand of Babylon. And so wouldn't you know it, after the reign of Hezekiah, the Assyrians began to decrease in their strength, and the Babylonians began to increase, and eventually the Babylonians defeated the Assyrians and became the new superpower in the world. And just like Assyria had threatened God's people, Babylon did the exact same thing, only this time God would not be providing deliverance from those attackers. That's what he prophesies. And, and, and if you want an in-depth look at that period of history, the book of Jeremiah gives, gives many of the details of that period of time. So what happened was in 586 BC, after Babylon had, had attacked a few times already, Jerusalem finally fell. It was defeated, uh, and the city along with the temple itself were burned. Burned by the Babylonians. Complete and total victory for them. Any people in Jerusalem who had any worth in the eyes of the Babylonians were taken captive. They were shipped off into exile. Now imagine what it would have been like. Imagine what it would have been like to have been in that position as an Israelite. You, you just saw your city conquered and burned. And, and perhaps even worse than that, the temple itself. God's house, the place where God dwelled, was burned. You know, a person being marched away from the city, you know, and I kind of picture the smoke rising in the background behind them. Man, they, they must have thought long and hard about what that all meant in a spiritual sense. Uh, had God completely abandoned his people? I mean, what happened? The, the Babylonians won. They, they defeated the people in southern Judah. Had, had the people gone so far astray that God had rejected them forever? Uh, was God not as strong as they thought He was? You know, perhaps He wasn't able to defend off the attacks, uh, to defend off the attacks from the Babylonians. You know, did the Babylonian idols possess something that God didn't? I, I, I mean, th- those were some deep questions that I imagine God's people would have had plenty of time to think about, not just as they're being marched away from Jerusalem, but in the years that followed as they were in exile in Babylon. I imagine that would have been a very depressing, very, very trying time for them. Because think about it, that the food in Babylon would have been different. It's not like they rolled out the Israelite cuisine when they got there, right? The food would have been different. The language would have been different. They, they would have been surrounded by people different than themselves, I imagine it would have been very similar to what David Brainerd experienced in his ministry among the Native Americans. And perhaps that was why David Brainerd found such comfort and joy in reading Isaiah chapter 40, because I imagine that God's people in Babylon were left clinging to any shred of hope that, that they could find, if they had any hope at all. And then enter God's message in Isaiah chapter 40. So we're going to cover chapters 40 through 48 today, uh, but the four themes that are highlighted in chapter 40 are the same ones that come up again and again and again in the following eight chapters. So what we're going to do is we're going to focus on chapter 40 and focus on those four themes and, and supplement our discussion with the following eight chapters. So here's the four themes. I'll I'll give you the rundown, and then we'll, we'll go through them. These are the four messages that God gave to his people struggling in captivity in Babylon. The first message in this section is that God wanted to give comfort and strength to his sinful yet beloved servant, his people in Judah. That's the first message. The second one, God's glory would be made known through his power and majesty he wanted them to be certain of that third God was beyond compare and we'll see especially in reference to idols and then fourth God God is at work he's at work in the world Th- those are the messages that come up again and again and again in in this section so so we're going to go through them one by one let's uh, let's look at the first one God wanted to give comfort and strength to his sinful yet beloved servant. We're going to read the first two verses of chapter 40, and then the last four verses. So follow with me, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. And again, let's as much as we can try and put ourselves in the shoes of a Jewish person in exile. God speaks and says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then skipping down to verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary, You know, I get the idea, I get the picture that God's people were facing exhaustion at this point. And maybe not so much physical exhaustion, maybe that was part of it, but emotional exhaustion, spiritual exhaustion, as they've been in exile for years, probably decades at this point. Many of them had probably been born in captivity, never knowing freedom. I mean, I, I, I wonder if those born in Babylon had been taught about about God, about God's love for his people. And if they had been taught that, I wonder if they believed it. I just wonder. I mean, the turmoil that they were experiencing and gone on for so long that God's love must have seemed like a distant memory or, or maybe just even a fairy tale that, that their parents told about how things used to be. But when God first spoke out of the silence, his first word to his people in chapter 40 verse 1 is comfort. He says it twice just to drive it home, comfort. He says, I'm speaking to you tenderly. Your warfare, it's ended. Your iniquity is pardoned. He says, as you wait for me, you'll renew your strength. You'll mount up with wings like eagles. You'll run and not be weary. You'll, you'll walk and not faint. What a, what a wonderful, hope-filled message that That must have been for God's people. And he went on in the following chapters. As I said, these themes come up again and again. He goes on in the following chapters and he gives more statements of comfort. Chapter 41, verse 8, God called the people his friend. His friend. 41, verse 10, he told them, fear not, he's with them. Verse 13 and 14 of chapter 41, he said, fear not, he helps them. Chapter 43, verse 1, fear not, I've redeemed you. Chapter 43, verse 5, fear not, I'm with you. Chapter 44, verse 2, fear not, I've chosen you. I mean, he told them, he told them he would not forsake them. He told them his soul delights in them. He told them he takes them by the hand. He told them they won't be burned by the fire. He told them they won't drown in the water. He told them they would be his witnesses before the nations of his great love and glory. And he told them that he blots out their transgressions and remembers their sins no more. Those are some pretty incredible statements for a rebellious group of captives to have spoken to them and spoken over them. I mean, uh, and, and, and those passages are all in your sermon notes if you want to look them up later and, and dwell upon them. I know I just ran through them quickly, but uh, but I do want to look up one verse together. I do want to look up chapter 43, verse 4. And again, we have to let the, the incredible emotion of this verse sink in. Chapter 43, verse 4, God says, Because you are precious in my eyes, and honored, and I love you. God tells his people, I love you. I mean, th- this was a group of people who deserved every bit of, of what they had received. I mean, they were a, a sinful, rebellious group that had rejected God. There's no question about that. And in this section, in these chapters, God does not gloss over that. It, it, is, it, is, uh, it is there written for all to see. He references their blindness and their deafness and their outright rejection of him. And yet, through all of that, God still loved them. That was the message he spoke to them. He still loved them. So I think the question is, you know, as we say, you know, what can we take from this? What's in this for us today? Do we face turmoil in our lives? Are you facing turmoil right now? Do you feel fear? pressing down upon you? Do you wonder if there's any way that, that God could still love you? The same message that God spoke to his people in exile in Babylon, he speaks that same message to us today. And it's not just here. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 is the exact same message just applied to all people for all time. God so loves us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Same message. I mean, it's all there. Yes, you're sinful. Yes, you're rebellious. But I love you, and I have died for you. While we were still stuck in captivity to sin, Christ loved us enough to die for us. That's, that's the message he gives to us. We are precious in his eyes. We are honored in his eyes. And he does love us. There's no question about it. Well, in addition to promising uh, comfort and strength and speaking love over his people, God also promised that his glory would be made known through his power and his majesty. So again, in chapter 40, I'll start reading in verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken." I think the people's time in exile was surely a time when they were questioning God's power and majesty. Uh, the burning of God's city and the burning of God's temple would have prompted those questions. Uh, the, the power of Babylon exerted over God's people would have prompted those questions. Every year that passed while they were still in exile, I think, would have prompted those questions about God's power and His Majesty. But in this chapter and 40 and in the chapters that, uh, that follow, God assured His people that His glory would be revealed. It would be revealed. All flesh would see it together. Um, in chapter 44, God laid claim to being the first and the last. He, he said that He is the rock. In chapter 48, God told His people that He was working for His own name's sake that the people's captivity would refine them in such a way that that it would bring great glory and great honor to God himself. The people would then be released from their captivity to go throughout the world proclaiming God's redemption, his glorious, his majestic redemption. It, it might have seemed at that time like God had been defeated. It might have seemed like that, and they were probably tempted to think that way, but but he assured his people that his power and his majesty would be made known to all. That day was coming. And again, you know, perhaps you have a similar question when you think about turmoil in your own life. Perhaps in, in the timeline of Holy Week, you feel like you're sitting in the Saturday between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Perhaps it seems like God has been defeated in your life and the enemy is winning. I mean, that must have been what those in exile felt. That must have been what the disciples felt on that Saturday after Jesus' crucifixion. If it's a dark Saturday for you right now, have faith and trust that that Resurrection Sunday is coming. It is coming. God God has promised. The time will come when God's power and majesty are made clearly known and and you will be living in full victory. And in God, we're not defeated. I mean, Saturday might have looked like a defeat, but it wasn't. In our turmoil, whatever we face, we're not defeated. In God, we are only victorious. That is his promise. And, and, And God's people in Babylon needed to be reminded of that. I think the disciples surely needed that reminder as they hid away on that Saturday. I think we need that reminder as well when it seems like defeat has closed in upon us. God's power, His majesty, will be made known. There is victory. God also proclaimed to His people that His glory that was being made known was beyond compare. Beyond compare, I mean, listen to the the slew of rhetorical questions that God asked in chapter 40. This is chapter 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? And of course, the answer to those rhetorical questions is no one. No one. There's, there's none. There's none who compare to God. No one, no other God comes close, and especially not idols which is what we see in this section. This is a major theme of these chapters. I mean, listen to how it is introduced in chapter 40, verse 18. To whom then will you liken God, or or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. This passage and all the others that follow in in this section (laughs) speak of the incredible folly of worshiping idols. Uh, Chapter 40, God points out how someone who can't even make an offering due to his poverty can have an idol crafted out of a piece of wood some irony there. Chapter 41, God begs the idols to give a prophecy regarding what's going to happen in the future. Chapter 42, God tells how those who trust in carved uh, carved images, metal images, will be put to shame. Chapter 44, God tells an elaborate story of how a craftsman takes a piece of wood and with half of it, he makes a fire and he bakes his bread and he eats, eats a meal. And then with the other half, he, he fashions it into an idol that he worships. Chapters 45 and 46, God points out how, how idols have no knowledge. They can't even move from place to place. They have to be carried around by animals and on people's shoulders. Uh, you know, when I do my sermon prep, one of the questions that I ask myself as I'm reading through the passage is, is what insights do I gain or, or what questions do I have from reading the passage through a child's eyes? I just find that usually provokes some good thought for me. And when it comes to this theme, I, th- I think the blunt question of a child would be, why would anyone worship an idol? I- I mean, why would anyone worship a piece of wood carved from a log that cannot speak, cannot prophesy, has no knowledge whatsoever, and has to be manually moved from place to place? Why bow down before something like that? Sounds like something a a child would would just come out and say, right? I mean, it sounds so silly when presented in those terms, doesn't it? Why would anyone worship an idol? And I think in this passage, in this section, God is driving home the point that the idols of the Babylonians are nothing, that they are absolutely nothing, that the people need to fear. God is the one far beyond compare. In fact, it's laughable even when he's compared to these idols. Now, you and I probably don't have physical idols to which we bow down and worship. Pastor Tom would always give me a hard time about the bobbleheads in my office, but but I assure you there's no worship of those that is taking place. For us, our our idol worship would probably take on a different form. And, And I came across a quote this week that I wanna read to you. I think frames it well. It says, idolatry is looking to anything or anyone other than God to be our refuge and source of joy. But it is a false hope for idols do not deliver. Sin isn't just doing the wrong things. It is, more fundamentally, looking to the wrong places for salvation, joy, security, and peace. It is idolatry. So we probably aren't bowing down to a carved image. But are we looking to the wrong places for salvation or joy or security or peace? If so, then, then idolatry may have more of a hold on us than, than we might think. We, we must know that no idol is of any comparison to God. And finally, the the last message from God to his people was that he was at work in the world. He was working. Listen to Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. God's people in Babylon may not have known exactly what God was doing or why he was doing it, but he assured them that he was in control and he was at work. And he goes on in in chapter 41, it speaks of God's hand being the one that guides the rising and the falling of the nations. Um, Chapter 44 and 45 even introduce God's people to the specific figure who would rise to power next and conquer the, the mighty Babylonians, and even names Cyrus the Persian. So through God's work, Babylon would be defeated, and they would be humiliated on the world stage. And through that same work, God told his people that he would bring about their release and the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and the rebuilding of the temple. God told them that he was working. Now, we need, to let the, we need to let the reality of that sink in for just a moment. God told his people exactly who he would use to bring about their return to the promised land. But it wasn't someone from the kingly line of David, and it wasn't someone from the priestly line of Aaron, And it wasn't someone from the prophetic line of of Moses or even of Isaiah himself. It was a pagan king named Cyrus. It was a pagan king. God would use a pagan king to bring about his purposes for his people. Now, I, I really don't want to get overly political this morning, but we have to be careful about assuming that God's work will only be accomplished when a certain kind of person resides in the White House or or sits in the governor's office or whatever it might be. Now, Now, this doesn't mean that we don't strive for justice. It doesn't mean that we don't push back against policies that run contrary to the truth of God's word. We do that. We should do that. But God is still at work today, and he can work through anyone to bring about his purposes in our country and in our world. So I'm not saying we always have to like the person through whom God works, but as he reminded his people in Babylon and as we can be reminded today as well, God God is still at work. He is working. We may not know exactly what he's doing. We may not know exactly why he's doing it, but we can rest assured that he is at work. That much is certain. That was God's message to his people in Babylon, and that same message holds true for us today. He still sits above the circle of the earth, as he reminded his people then. God's people in Babylon, uh, they were facing great turmoil. I mean, there's, there's no way around it. They were facing great turmoil. And in the midst of that turmoil, God spoke to them, and he assured them of his love for them. He assured them of his glory. He assured them of his work that he was carrying out. You may find yourself facing great turmoil in your life at the present. And in the midst of that turmoil, it's the same thing. Let's allow God to speak to us and assure us about his love, assure us about his glory that will be made known assure us about his work that he is doing. I'm confident that that as we allow God to do that, that we can can be like David Brainerd, who faced incredible hardship, and and we can be like the people in Babylon who faced incredible hardship, that, that no matter what happens around us, we can find comfort, and we can find hope in the midst of that hardship and that turmoil. That message that God spoke to his people that started with the word comfort still applicable for us today. Same God who sits on the throne, same God who loves us, same God who is victorious, same God who, who is at work, who is bringing about his purposes. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's give praise to God for that reality, that wonderful promise. God, we come to you, and um, in some ways, we can only imagine what, what your people in Babylon were experiencing. Uh, we can guess. We can, we can wonder. God, but at the same time, we know ourselves, and we know the turmoil that we have faced in life or that we currently do face can see turmoil of loved ones and friends in our lives and God in the midst of that would you would you remind us of these truths just as you reminded your people in Babylon? May we rest in these truths help us to, to find comfort in them you've not just said that you love us you've You've shown us, you've gone to the cross, you've given yourself fully. There's no question of your love. We know that your glory will be revealed. At times we see it here in this life and and at other times we don't. And it might make us wonder and it might make us question, but help us to rest in the fact that your glory is being shown more and more and one day will be fully seen. All flesh will see it. We look forward to that day. Would you sustain us until then? Would you strengthen us as you promised to do? Would you comfort us as we walk this life that, that can be filled with turmoil? God, above all this morning, we praise you that you are not like those worthless idols that quite honestly are good for nothing. God, we give you praise as the living God, as the God who sits above the circle of the earth, as the God who is powerful and is majestic and who loves us and loves us deeply and loves us fully. We give you praise, we give you thanks. In your name we pray, Amen.